Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Roe to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to roco snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. designed to help you fall asleep. Find us on snoozecast.com and follow us on Instagram at snoozecast to find the behind the scenes content. If you enjoy our show, please write a review on the podcast app. Also, share us with a friend. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters and by Talisman. Tonight, we'll read the first part of the ninth chapter of Little Women by American author Louisa May Alcott, published in 1868, titled Meg Goes to Vanity Fair. Following the lives of the four March sisters, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy, the novel details their passage from childhood to womanhood, and is loosely based on the author and her sisters. If you'd like to start at the beginning, find the first episode that aired on December 18, 2019. If you'd like a refresher from the last chapter, it aired on July 22, 2020. In the previous chapter, Joe meets Apollyon, Joe comes to terms with her fiery temper when little sister Amy falls through thin ice due to Joe's negligence. Let's get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. Take a few deep breaths.
Chapter 9 Meg Goes to Vanity Fair Meg said, one April day, as she stood packing the go abroad trunk in her room, surrounded by her sisters, I do think it's the most fortunate thing in the world that those children should have the measles just now. Joe replied, looking like a windmill as she folded skirts with her long arms, and so nice of Annie Moffat not to forget her promise. A whole fortnight of fun will be regularly splendid. Beth added, as she tidily sorted neck and hair ribbons in her best box, lent for the great occasion. In such lovely weather, I'm so glad of that. Amy said, with her mouth full of pins, as she artistically replenished her sister's cushion, I wish I was going to have a fine time and wear all these nice things. I wish you were all going, but as you can't, I shall keep my adventures to tell you when I come back. I'm sure it's the least I can do when you have been so kind, lending me things and helping me get ready, said Meg, glancing round the room at the very simple outfit, which seemed nearly perfect in their eyes. What did Mother give you? Out of the treasure box, asked Amy, who had not been present at the opening of a certain cedar chest in which Mrs. March kept a few relics of past splendor as gifts for her girls when the proper time came. A pair of silk stockings, that pretty carved fan, and a lovely blue sash. I wanted the violet silk, but there isn't time to make it over, so I must be contented with my old tarlatan. It'll look nice over the new muslin skirt, and the sash will set it off beautifully. I wish I hadn't smashed my coral bracelet, for you might have had it, said Joe, who loved to give and lend but whose possessions were usually too dilapidated to be of much use. Meg replied, There's a lovely old-fashioned pearl set in the treasure chest, but Mother said real flowers were the prettiest ornament for a young girl, and Lori promised to send me all I want. Now, let me see. There's my new gray walking suit. Just curl up the feather in my hat, Beth. Then my poplin for Sunday and the small party. It looks heavy for spring, doesn't it? The violet silk would be so nice. Oh, dear. Amy said, Never mind. You've got the tarlatan for the big party, and you always look like an angel in white. Amy brooded over the little store of finery in which her soul delighted. It isn't low-necked, and it doesn't sweep enough, 
but it will have to do. My blue house dress looks so well, turned and freshly trimmed, that I feel as if I've got a new one. My silk sash isn't a bit the fashion, and my bonnet doesn't look like Sally's. It's strong and neat, so I ought not to complain, but I know I shall feel ashamed of it besides Annie's silk one with a gold top, sighed Meg, surveying the little umbrella with great disfavor. Change it, advised Joe. I won't be so silly or hurt Marmy's feelings when she took so much pains to get my things. It's a nonsensical notion of mine. I'm not going to give it up. My silk stockings and two pairs of new gloves are my comfort. You are a dear to lend me yours, Joe. I feel so rich and sort of elegant with two new pairs and the old ones cleaned up for common. And Meg took a refreshing peep at her glove box. Annie Moffat has blue and pink bows on her nightcaps. Would you put some on mine? she asked, as Beth brought up a pile of snowy muslins, fresh from Hannah's hands. No, I wouldn't, for the smart caps won't match the plain gowns without any trimming on them. Poor folks shouldn't rig, said Joe decidedly. Meg replied impatiently. I wonder if I shall ever be happy enough to have real lace on my clothes and bows on my caps. Beth observed in her quiet way. You said the other day that you'd be perfectly happy if you could only go to Annie Moffat's. So I did. Well, I am happy, and I won't fret. But it does seem as if the more one gets, the more one wants, doesn't it? There now, the trays are ready and everything in, but my ball dress, which I shall leave for mother to pack, said Meg, cheering up as she glanced from the half-filled trunk to the many times pressed and mended white tarlatan, which she called her ball dress with an important air. The next day was fine, and Meg departed in style for a fortnight of novelty and pleasure. Mrs. March had consented to the visit rather reluctantly, fearing that Margaret would come back more discontented then she went, but she begged so hard, and Sally had promised to take good care of her, and a little pleasure seemed so delightful after a winter of irksome work that the mother yielded, and the daughter went to take her first taste of fashionable life. The Moffats were very fashionable, and simple Meg was rather daunted, at first, by the splendor of the house, 
and the elegance of its occupants, and soon put their guest at her ease. Perhaps Meg felt, without understanding why, that they were not particularly cultivated or intelligent people, and that all their gilding could not quite conceal the ordinary material of which they were made. It certainly was agreeable to fare sumptuously, drive in a fine carriage, and wear her best frock every day, and do nothing but enjoy herself. It suited her exactly, and soon she began to imitate the manners and conversation of those about her, to put on little airs and graces, use French phrases, crimp her hair, take in her dresses, and talk about the fashions as well as she could. The more she saw of Annie Moffat's pretty things, the more she envied her and sighed to be rich. Home now looked bare and dismal as she thought of it. Work grew harder than ever, and she felt that she was a very destitute and much-injured girl, in spite of the new gloves and silk stockings. She had not much time for repining, however, for the three young girls were busily employed in having a good time. They shopped, walked, rode, and called all day, went to theaters and operas, or frolicked at home in the evening, for Annie had many friends and knew how to entertain them. Her older sisters were very fine young ladies, and one was engaged, which was extremely interesting and romantic, Meg thought. Mr. Moffat was a fat, jolly old gentleman who knew her father, and Mrs. Moffat, a fat, jolly old lady, who took as great a fancy to Meg as her daughter had done. Everyone petted her, and Daisy, as they called her, was in a fair way to have her head turned. When the evening for the small party came, she found that the poplin wouldn't do at all, for the other girls were putting on thin dresses and making themselves very fine indeed. So out came the tarlatan, looking older, limper, and shabbier than ever, beside Sally's crisp new one. Meg saw the girls glance at it, and then at one another, and her cheeks began to burn, for with all her gentleness, she was very proud. No one said a word about it, but Sally offered to dress her hair and Annie to tie her sash. And Belle, the engaged sister, praised her white arms. But in their kindness, Meg saw only pity for her poverty, and her heart felt very heavy 
as she stood by herself, while the others laughed, chattered, and flew about like gauzy butterflies. The hard, bitter feeling was getting pretty bad when the maid brought in a box of flowers. Before she could speak, Annie had the cover off, and all were exclaiming at the lovely roses, heath, and fern within. It's for Belle, of course. George always sends her some, but these are altogether ravishing, cried Annie with a great sniff. They are for Miss March, the man said, and here's a note, put in the maid, holding it to Meg. What fun! Who are they from? Didn't know you had a lover, cried the girls, fluttering about Meg in a high state of curiosity and surprise. The note is from Mother, and the flowers from Lori, said Meg simply, yet much gratified that he had not forgotten her. Oh, indeed, said Annie with a funny look, as Meg slipped the note into her pocket as a sort of talisman against envy, vanity, and false pride, for the few loving words had done her good, and the flowers cheered her up by their beauty. Feeling almost happy again, she laid by a few ferns and roses for herself and quickly made up the rest in dainty bouquets for the breasts, hair, or skirts of her friends, offering them so prettily that Clara, the elder sister, told her she was the sweetest little thing she ever saw, and they looked quite charmed with her small attention. Somehow, the kind act finished her despondency, and when all the rest went to show themselves to Mrs. Moffat, she saw a happy, bright-eyed face in the mirror as she laid her ferns against her rippling hair and fastened the roses in the dress that didn't strike her as so very shabby now. She enjoyed herself very much that evening, for she danced to her heart's content. Everyone was very kind, and she had three compliments. Annie made her sing, and someone said she had a remarkably fine voice. Major Lincoln asked who the fresh little girl with the beautiful eyes was and Mr. Moffat insisted on dancing with her because she didn't dawdle but had some spring in her, as he gracefully expressed it. She was just sitting inside the conservatory, waiting for her partner to bring her in ice, when she heard a voice ask on the other side of the flowery wall, it would be a grand thing for one of those girls, wouldn't it? Sally says they're very intimate now, and the old man quite dotes on them. 
Mrs. M has made her plans, I dare say. We'll play her cards well, early as it is. The girl evidently doesn't think of it yet, said Mrs. Moffat. She told that fib about her mama, as if she did know, and colored up when the flowers came quite prettily. Poor thing. She'd be so nice if she was only got up in style. Do you think she'd be offended if we offered to lend her a dress for Thursday? Asked another voice. She's proud, but I don't believe she'd mind, for that dowdy tarlatan is all she got. She may tear it tonight. That would be a good excuse for offering a decent one. Here Meg's partner appeared, to find her looking much flushed and rather agitated. She was proud, and her pride was useful just then, for it helped her hide her mortification, anger, and disgust at what she had just heard. For, innocent and unsuspicious as she was, she could not help understanding the gossip of her friends. She tried to forget it, but could not, and kept repeating to herself, Mrs. M has made her plans. That fib about her mama and dowdy tarlatan. Till she was ready to cry and rush home to tell her troubles and ask for advice. As that was impossible, she did her best to seem gay, and being rather excited, she succeeded so well that no one dreamed what an effort she was making. She was very glad when it was all over, and she was quiet in her bed, where she could think and wonder and fume till her head ached and her hot cheeks were cooled by a few natural tears. Those foolish yet well-meant words had opened a new world to Meg and much disturbed the peace of the old one in which till now she had lived as happily as a child. Her innocent friendship with Lori was spoiled by the silly speeches she had overheard. Her faith in her mother was a little shaken by the worldly plans attributed to her by Mrs. Moffat, who judged others by herself, and the sensible resolution to be contented with the simple wardrobe which suited a poor man's daughter was weakened by the unnecessary pity of girls who thought a shabby dress one of the greatest calamities under heaven. Poor Meg had a restless night and got up heavy-eyed, unhappy, half-resentful toward her friends and half-ashamed of herself for not speaking out frankly and setting everything right. Everybody dawdled that morning, and it was noon before the girls found energy enough even to take up their work. Something in the manner of her friends struck Meg at once. 
they treated her with more respect, she thought, took quite a tender interest in what she said, and looked at her with eyes that plainly betrayed curiosity. All this surprised and flattered her, though she did not understand it, till Miss Bell looked up from her writing and said, with a sentimental air, Daisy, dear, I've sent an invitation to your friend, Mr. Lawrence, for Thursday. We should like to know him, and it's only a proper compliment to you. Why not, Cherie? asked Miss Bell. He's too old. My child, what do you mean? What is his age? I beg to know, cried Miss Clara. Nearly seventy, I believe, answered Meg, counting stitches to hide the merriment in her eyes. You sly creature, of course we meant the young man, exclaimed Miss Bell, laughing. There isn't any. Lori is only a little boy. And Meg laughed also at the queer look which the sisters exchanged as she thus described her supposed lover. About your age, Nan said. Nearer my sister Joe's, I am seventeen in August, returned Meg, tossing her head. It's very nice of him to send you flowers, isn't it? said Annie, looking wise about nothing. Yes, he often does, to all of us, for their house is full, and we're so fond of them. My mother and old Mr. Lawrence are friends, you know, so it is quite natural that we children should play together. And Meg hoped they would say no more. It's evident Daisy isn't out yet, said Miss Clara to Belle with a nod. Quite a pastoral state of innocence all around, returned Miss Bell with a shrug. I'm going out to get some little matters for my girls. Can I do anything else for you, young ladies? asked Mrs. Moffat, lumbering in like an elephant in silk and lace. No, thank you, ma'am, replied Sally. I've got my new pink silk for Thursday and don't want a thing. Nor I, began Meg, but stopped because it occurred to her that she did want several things and could not have them. What shall you wear? asked Sally. My old white one again, if I can mend it fit to be seen. It got sadly torn last night, said Meg, trying to speak quite easily but feeling very uncomfortable. Why don't you send home for another? said Sally, who was not an observing young lady. I haven't got any other. It cost Meg an effort to say that, but Sally did not see it and exclaimed in amiable surprise, Only that? She did not finish her speech, 
for Belle shook her head at her and broke in, saying kindly, Not at all. Where's the use of having a lot of dresses when she isn't out yet? There's no need of sending home, Daisy, even if you had a dozen, for I've got a sweet blue silk laid away, which I've outgrown, and you shall wear it to please me, won't you, dear? Now, do let me please myself by dressing you up in style. I admire to do it, and you'd be a regular little beauty with a touch here and there. I shan't let anyone see you till you're done, and then we'll burst upon them like Cinderella and her godmother going to the ball, said Belle in her persuasive tone. Meg couldn't refuse the offer so kindly made, for a desire to see if she would be a little beauty after touching up caused her to accept and forget all her former uncomfortable feelings towards the Moffats. On the Thursday evening, Belle shut herself up with her maid, and between them, they turned Meg into a fine lady. They crimped and curled her hair. They polished her neck and arms with some fragrant powder, touched her lips with coralline salve to make them redder, and Hortense would have added some rouge to her cheeks if Meg had not rebelled. They laced her into a sky-blue dress, which was so tight she could hardly breathe, and so low in the neck that modest Meg blushed at herself in the mirror. For Hortense tied them on with a bit of pink silk, which did not show. A cluster of tea rose buds at the bosom and reconciling Meg to the display of her pretty white shoulders and a pair of high-heeled silk boots satisfied the last wish of her heart. A lace handkerchief a plumy fan, and a bouquet in a shoulder holder finished her off, and Miss Bell surveyed her with the satisfaction of a little girl with a newly dressed doll. Mademoiselle is charmant. Très jolie, is she not? cried Hortense, clasping her hands in an affected rapture. Come and show yourself, said Miss Bell, leading the way to the room where the others were waiting. As Meg went rustling after with her long skirt,
trailing, her ears tinkling, her curls waving, and her heart beating. She felt as if her fun had really begun at last, for the mirror had plainly told her that she was a little beauty. Her friends repeated the pleasing phrase enthusiastically, and for several minutes she stood like a jackdaw in the fable, enjoying her borrowed plumes, while the rest chattered like a party of magpies.